I am here to discuss the so-called flying saucers. The Air Force interest in this problem has been due to our feeling of an obligation to identify and analyze to the best of our ability anything in the air that may have the possibility of threat or menace to the United States. Welcome to Omnia the podcast on all things pen arts and sciences. In December 2017, the New York Times revealed the existence of a Pentagon program investigating unidentified flying objects. For many people, the continued existence of such a program on UFOs came as a surprise, though the military has historically been known to conduct such studies. Most notably, the Air Force's Project Blue Book investigated more than 12,000 claimed UFO sightings between 1952 and 1969. Kate Dorsch, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History and Sociology of Science, has been researching UFO encounters reported in Project Blue Book. Her dissertation covers the first flying saucer report in 1947 through the release of Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and investigates the creation of scientific knowledge and how this knowledge is communicated to the public. People tend to be disappointed when they come to hear me give talks and their first questions are always, well, what about aliens? And my response is always, well, I don't really work on aliens. I'm not, I'm interested in aliens, but I'm not really interested in aliens. What is interesting to me is thinking about expert knowledge creation and what role the public plays in that. So my project in particular looks at ways of knowing through this Cold War national security lens, a strange phenomenon is taking place in the skies, people are seeing it, and initially the people who are having these experiences or making these observations are people who are imagined as trained experts, airline pilots, um, Air Force personnel, technically trained members of the service. And so the Air Force feels like they need to take this thing seriously, especially since early sightings are happening over the West Coast, its proximity to the Soviet Union, uh, couple this to a lot of atomic anxiety following the dropping of the bomb, the rapid pace of science, uh, scientific and technical progress. All of these things are coming together around this strange phenomena that is beginning to happen in the summer of 1947, that all of these people are making these strange observations, that their description of what they're seeing is so consistent. And so I'm interested in the knowledge infrastructure that gets constructed around this thing, where experts have to work with non-experts, where new technologies have to be developed and deployed and old technologies doctored. It's a long-winded way of saying that I'm interested in the creation of scientific knowledge around this thing and, and how the UFO is not like an asteroid or a meteor or a weather phenomenon. It is transient, it is fleeting, it is unpredictable and impossible to locate, and it presents a significant problem for basic scientific intervention. So how do you do that work? My dissertation starts in 1947 uh, with the very first modern UFO sighting, or what is considered the very first modern UFO sighting, Kenneth Arnold sighting over the Cascade Mountains in Washington State on June 26, 1947. Uh, Kenneth Arnold is a pilot. He's a trained pilot. He sees nine objects in the distance around Mount Rainier. And so when he lands, he tells a bunch of his buddies, you guys wouldn't believe what I saw. Here's what I saw. 
I climbed back up to 9,200 feet, and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, uh, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. I uh, at first uh, thought they were geese because it flew like geese, but it was going so fast that, that uh, I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. They looked something like uh, a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. And no one really takes him seriously. Nobody really believes him. But the flying saucer thing comes from Arnold, not in that he says they're round like saucers, but that they they move like saucers skipping over the water with that sort of um, flight behavior. And the newspaper guy gets it wrong and says, you know, they've, they look like flying saucers. And that's where the flying saucer thing comes from. Um, so following Arnold's sighting and the way it gets media coverage, there is a flap that follows. And so the late 1940s, early UFO investigations are really rooted in these Cold War atomic Soviet concerns. We have to investigate these things because they could represent an existential threat. And even though some of them are hoaxes, a lot of them aren't anything remarkable, all it takes is one. Um, So we have to continue this investigation, even though it seems like a massive waste of time and money. As the 50s roll on, The investigations sort of go through this undulation of interest. There are some years where there's a flap, like in 1952, there's a flap over Washington, D.C., where radar returns are giving a number of unknown objects. In Washington, ghost-like objects dart across the radar screen at the CAA Traffic Control Center at National Airport for several hours, traveling more than 100 miles an hour. Air Force jet fighters spend several hours chasing the objects plotted on the radar scope. And scientists later decide that it's an atmospheric phenomenon that's doing this, but this sort of tenor, this this tenor of like, who do we believe and who do we don't, you know, who do we who do we not trust, um, really gets going in the 50s, and this sort of the Air Force is covering things up and hiding things from us begins to develop, um, and then in the 60s, sort of the early to mid 60s, uh, there is a sighting in Michigan. Um, that scientists come out and a large number of people all see these strange lights over the forest and they all report it. I saw it and I saw two red lights and I saw what looked to be shaped like a pie. I could just see the front of it. I just saw the round front and I could see the lights on either side. Oh, it uh, moved very rapidly at any speed or rather any direction it wanted to go. Why it could change and go to the right or the left or go crossways uh, without hesitating a bit. What do you think it was? Well, if they call it a flying saucer, that's what it is. And the scientists come out and say it was just swamp gas. It was just swamp gas lit up by the stars and the moon and the sun. You know, whatever it is, it's just it's just a natural phenomenon. You guys are making something out of nothing. And the people in Michigan, this Michigan town, are so offended by the somewhat haughty way they're being spoken of in the national press. And they're so upset about not being taken seriously that they contact their representative, who happens to be future president Gerald Ford. Um, So Gerald Ford goes to, I believe, the House um, Space and Aeronautics Committee and says, A congressional inquiry would be most worthwhile because the American people are becoming most interested and in many instances very alarmed by the UFO story. I firmly believe the American people would feel much better 
if there was a full-blown investigation of these alleged incidents. And again, it's in 1966, 1967, 1968. Vietnam is happening. Um, there's a lot of civil unrest. And then you get into the 70s. The United States Air Force is no longer spending money on this thing. They have shut down their programs ostensibly. Um, the physical sciences are moving on. The people who aren't moving on are moving into becoming hardcore extraterrestrial intelligence hypothesis true believers, um, starting their own professional societies and their own research centers, and they've really sort of left establishment science. Um, and it becomes this very sort of new age, new discovery from where in 47, these things represent threat. They're going to destroy us. By the late 70s, they're going to save us from ourselves. Seems they're trying to teach us a basic tonal vocabulary. It's the first day of school, fellas. In the process of writing the script for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Steven Spielberg received guidance from Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a leading scientific advisor on the UFO studies for the military. Dorsch talks about how the film, released in 1977, relies heavily on UFO sightings documented by Project Blue Book. So there's a, a sense in which Close Encounters of the Third Kind is just a film version of what the Air Force has been hearing about for decades. It's just a visual presentation of all of that stuff. Um, so in that sense, it's very Cold War investigative program. But then it also has this sort of new agey, UFOs are all over the world. People are hearing these songs and these tones. People are being visited. When Richard Dreyfus has his experience, he's being driven towards the Devil's Tower. He's seeing visions of this place. Him and everyone else that have been visited by these things are having these communal events. Um, and they all go to this to this mountain where there is, yes, the scientific massive infrastructure built up to welcome the mothership, right? They knew the, the Air Force and the sort of world scientific community knew these things were coming. So I end my dissertation with it because it really just so captures um, the end of the sort of first part of the 20th century UFO phenomena. Most of Dorsch's research examines an archive of materials from Project Blue Book held at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia. She describes looking at a collection from physicist Edward Condon, director of the University of Colorado's UFO project, which was funded by the Air Force. Flipping through Condon's papers and the boxes of letters from people saying, I had a sighting on May 23rd, 1959, and this is what I saw. Um, or here, I have sent you negatives of a thing that I took a picture of three years ago, and nobody believed me, but I think you will believe me. Um, there's a bag of dirt in there from somebody's backyard where a UFO landed. Would you like to do a soil analysis? Or here is a bunch of aluminum that came off of a UFO that landed in my backyard. You should probably run some sort of test on this. Um, so when you think about these holdings, yeah, it runs the gamut from these incredibly formal Air Force press releases and these letters to university boards of trustees about why we should continue this or why we should let someone have sabbatical um, to this really like to handwritten letters 
from people from all over the place um, writing about their experiences. To have that sort of color and variation in an archive is just an incredible gift as a historian. You know, to suggest that people's experiences are on par and equally valid as things that are demonstrably confirmable through some way. This undergirded a lot of the UFO conversations in the 50s and 60s. I saw a thing, I know what I saw, it's real. Um, we're seeing that today, right? I know that the numbers say that employment, unemployment is down, but like I don't have a job, so obviously it's not, right? And I, I know things are, the numbers say it's better, but it doesn't feel better for me, so that's what actually counts, lived experience. Um, trying to parse professional expertise from experiential expertise from imagined expertise, I think is, is very challenging. And I think it's why people still find it interesting. I expected a lot more pushback in the academic community on this project, and people are incredibly enthusiastic and supportive of it. Um, because I think it's rooted in this sort of idea about who gets to make decisions for who, right? Who gets to say what's real or not? And who gets to tell you that your experience was like a hallucination or something? If there's a way to sort of better navigate those relationships and, and to communicate information better to the public, right? To, to do so in a way that doesn't seem so condescending as scientists saying, you thought you saw a UFO and it's really just swamp gas illuminated in a certain way. And of course they're pissed. Who wouldn't be, right? You've just been talked down to by like one scientist who wasn't even there. Um, so like trying to navigate those social relations surrounding trust and expertise and how we communicate knowledge and how we make knowledge and what role we let people have in the construction of that knowledge that has real effects on their lived experience, um, I think is the sort of subtext of this project. And I think that's what makes it so interesting to so many different people. This has been a presentation of Penn Arts and Sciences. Special thanks to Kate Dorsch from the Department of History and Sociology of Science. I could not take it all so seriously, really, when you called and said you'd seen a UFO. But then it dawned on me the message in writing spelled out a meeting never dreamed of before.